Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are joined by David Barnett, CEO and founder of PopSockets. Before launching PopSockets into an Inc. 5000 monster company, David was a professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder. The idea for PopSockets originated out of David's 2010 frustration with wires entangling themselves in his pocket. His solution was gluing two buttons on the back of his phone, enabling him to wrap the wires in a neater fashion. This launched what we all know to be PopSockets today as the collapsible accordion-like buttons on the back of mobile devices. In 2012, David started a successful Kickstarter campaign for iPhone cases to be integrated with the PopSocket grips. A couple years later, Barnett took PopSockets out of his garage and set his sights on the global market. Currently, PopSockets' estimated annual revenue is $68.6 million per year, and the little collapsible button on the back of your phone is still taking the world by storm. All right, David, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Thank you so much. No reason to have the podcast. That was a complete and an almost accurate summary. Only one detail off, but everything else was perfect. Let's start there. What did we miss? What did we get wrong? Oh, just the estimated annual revenue. We've grown quite a bit uh, since since those days. Come on, update me, man. What, what's the what's the better number? <laughs> we don't. We actually don't. We no longer uh, make it public, but I could say it's quite a bit more than that. Wow. Okay, yeah. we'll we'll leave it there, um, man. That is that's amazing. Uh, congratulations on the growth. It's always fun for us to have someone on the podcast where we've actually experienced your product. And uh, I'll never forget my wife coming home with one of your pop sockets on the back of, of her phone. I was like, "What in the world is that?" <laughs> what was year like, was that? Uh, probably two, three years ago. Okay. We first saw it on my niece's phone. I don't know if that's probably the way that it that it works. The younger generation grabbed onto it first, but I remember my niece at the lake having one and then my wife got one and she was like, this is going to change the game for you just holding your phone and not hurting your wrist and all that kind of stuff. And uh, now it's, it's everywhere I look. That is how it works. The middle school girls typically are the vectors. They bring the virus home and infect the rest of the household. And then we get the brothers, older brothers and sisters and eventually parents and eventually grandparents using the product. Yep. And now there's a there's like a cacophony, almost like a chorus of the sound of, that it makes when you collapse it. <laughs> the <crick. laughs> like when I'm at Thanksgiving and there's, you know, the the cousins and just, there's just sounds of people collapsing their pop sockets on the back of their phones, which is hilarious. Well, we've got something in the works that will make that even more fun. I can't tell you the details, but oh. we will enhance that experience by quite a bit. Okay. All right. Well, let's start off where, where I typically like to start off. Flesh out that story a little bit for us. Did we get that part right? Was it, yeah. was it the frustration with the wires being tangled and stuff? You nailed the story. Uh, I still have a vivid memory. Uh, 2010, pulling my earbuds out of my pocket and it was in the tangled knot. It was like that every time. So I lived up in the mountains at the time outside Boulder and thought, I can't deal with this anymore. So I just went straight to my car, drove down to town went to a Joanne fabric store and walked around the aisles until I settled on a couple of big clothing buttons that I glued to the backside of my iPhone three with little mm. spacer buttons underneath them. So I could wrap my cord 
uh, in between these giant clothing buttons and the back of my phone. iPhone 3, if you remember, it was tiny compared oh, yeah. to the current phones. So these buttons were together uh, as big as the phone. They looked absurd, but it solved my problem. And then through teasing from my family and friends, uh, I decided to improve the product. Uh, I wanted it to look better and to have more functionality. And that's when I started searching for a mechanism to enable the buttons to expand and collapse and articulate at different angles for further functionality so they could serve as stands and clips. Wow. Uh, grips, uh, and eventually settled on, like you said, the accordion mechanism uh, that, that you've probably seen in a kitchen store or a camping store yeah. uh, in bowls. And I thought, huh, I'll just shrink that down and slap it on the back of a phone and I've got my mechanism, but it wasn't so easy. It's, it, you can't just scale down that mechanism. It doesn't work. The physics don't work. Mm. So it took about a year of, of just trial and error prototyping. So I would, I would design with this CAD software models and I'd send it off to a prototyper in China. And a few weeks later, he would send me uh, 10 or 12 prototypes the, the first ones did nothing. They were like silver dollars, so they didn't expand at all. <laughs> they were just rock hard. I was so excited. I ran to the mailbox. I, I opened them up. Uh, my wife was standing next to me, and I took them out and just knocked them against the, you could hear the sound as I hit them against the desk, rock hard, nothing. Oh. Uh, and from there, they got better and better and better until I could get them to expand, but, but then I couldn't get them to stay collapsed. Anyway, a lot of trial and error until finally I settled on the design that's uh, popular today. Wow. This is probably a dumb question, you coming from the world where you would know about manufacturing and things like that, but I just popped in my brain. Do you have to pay for all those iterations or are those kind of part of the figuring it out process that they ship you some and you say, no, I want it like this? Uh, so once, once, once you develop into an established company with doing big business with the supplier, then you'll get perks like that. So the suppliers okay. will, um, they'll do so-called, you know, my dad always told me nothing's free in life and he was right. So, well, the air, the air is free, <laughs> but besides that, nothing's free in life. So, um, you know, they, they give you free prototypes. They'll do lots of rounds of design for you, but of course it shows up in the cost of your basic product a little bit. They have to pay for that labor early on though. You have to pay for everything directly. So, mm. um, no, I paid for every one of those prototypes. I was burning through cash. I spent all of my savings and then fortunately my house burned down early on, right around when I had the idea, my house burned down in a big fire here in Boulder. Wow. I ended up using the insurance money to fund pop sockets. It was perfect timing. So I got, I got a brand new house that was empty for about five or six years. Uh, my wife and I, we slept on mattresses on the floor. There was nothing on our walls, very little furniture because I put all the money into pop. Wow. At the time, my wife was not so happy, but now she's okay with it. Yeah. I bet. I bet. Yeah. Well, overall, when you started sinking money into this idea, was or were were most of the people surrounding you seeing the brilliance of it and saying yeah man go for it or were there uh, plenty of people saying what are you doing putting your money and time thing, in this one thing one piece of feedback or reaction i would consistently get which was that is the stupidest thing i've ever seen um, <laughs> i heard that phrase so many times from so many people <laughs> including my friends and family um 
But it, it was one interaction I had with some kids. You know, this was just for myself to start with. And then I thought I, I kind of got addicted to this process of making something that maybe I could get in one store. Um, so I wasn't all that confident in it, but I, I was once on the campus of University of Colorado and I showed a prototype to some, some probably middle schoolers that happened to be walking through the college campus and their jaws just dropped and their eyes bugged out. And I could see from the looks on their faces that I had something that they yeah. were, it was that, you know, they went into that kind of zombie look zone where they had to yeah. have it. And I just, that just stuck in my mind through all the criticism. I thought, no, I know there's something here. I could at least sell a few thousand of them. I know it. Wow. Wow. Oh man. Cause that was going to be my question is what do you do in the early nascent stages of something when it hasn't proven itself yet? And you've got a lot of that pushback. So that's a brilliant answer. Was there anything else that was helping I, you? Yeah, I've got to say this is not. I don't. I don't say this uh, to as an example to other entrepreneurs because statistically speaking, most ideas fail, right? And so it's not. It's not that I'm encouraging people in the face of criticism of their ideas to just push on, push on, push on. Yeah. In fact, people need to be really careful, right, to not invest everything they have in an idea that everyone around them thinks is a bad idea. That's really not advised. I got extremely lucky here mm. in this instance, but I also have the sort of personality that, that a lot of entrepreneurs have, which is, I'm just lucky. I was born with a certain kind of resilience, I guess, to failure. And, and I remember my wife and people saying, what if this doesn't, what if it's not successful? And that was after several years of working really hard. I was still a full professor, but I was working yeah. you know, on the side hard. And they'd say, what if nobody buys these? My honest answer was, I don't care. I'll just, I'll just do something else. Like the money, <laughs> whatever I tried, I'll try something else. Um, wow. So yeah. you did have, you did have somewhat of an, uh, of an entrepreneurial uh, desire that you were scratching. So it wasn't just that I came across this thing and if I try it and it works great, if not, I'll go back to something away from entrepreneurism, but you would have been maybe experimenting with something else on your own. I see. Yeah. No, I was starting to get burnt out with philosophy. Um, I was burnt out from the process and um, I was sort of looking for something else. And I was, as a kid, I was an entrepreneur. So I, mm -hmm. I had a nickname, H. Ross Perot. Some of your, your listeners will know who that is, depending what their age is. Uh, but he was an entrepreneur in Texas who ran for president. And that's what my neighbors called me because I was always tinkering. So I, I definitely had the spirit. Yeah, yeah. You've definitely got the most unique background in terms of studying physics and philosophy, and then winding up and as an entrepreneur. What? How do you? How do you kind of see all that? I thought you were referring to the background in our Zoom call with the ladder, ladder behind me. <laughs> That's right. Always working on something. You have a very interesting background. There's a ladder behind you. <laughs> now we covered that in the pre-interview. <laughs> Wonder why there's two A-frame ladders behind you. I mean, as I'm doing my research and find out that you went to Emory. Uh, was that for physics or was that for philosophy? I studied, well, it's it's a bit of a stretch to say I studied, but I majored in philosophy as an undergrad. I had a lot of fun. And then I decided to get serious uh, and actually study after I graduated. So I, I went to the University of Colorado and studied physics wow. and math. And then uh, I walked out of a lab one day, right out of the middle of a lab, just thinking I'm not getting the answers I want about the nature of the universe. So I walked straight over to the philosophy department and uh, got an application and enrolled in their master's program and eventually got a PhD in philosophy at NYU. Wow. 
Wow. So was that the itch for you when you were going into those, those differing disciplines was at that time trying to, trying to get some insight into what's behind the universe? You know, I've never really thought about what's in common with on yeah, Well, yes, that's what motivated me to go into academics, but I thought you were, you were asking about the connection between the entrepreneurial itch. I'm getting and there. The philosophical itch, uh-huh. which I've never thought about. What is the connection? I'm not sure. I don't know whether there is one. One is highly practical, right? They both have to do with problem solving. Maybe that's the connection. Mm-hmm. They're both uh, a desire to solve problems. One's to des- one is to solve abstract, you know, big picture problems that often have no bearing whatsoever on our day-to-day lives. Yeah. The other is all about day-to-day lives and solutions for them. Did that, did that aspect of the big picture that's removed from the day-to-day did that start to kind of lose your interest over time yeah i had struggled with uh with big picture questions like you know what is consciousness how are we related to our brains and bodies um what is meaning you know in language what's in common between a a sentence of french and a sentence of english that express the same thought what is a thought Mm -hmm. just big picture questions like that which are fascinating questions but I had struggled with them for a while. And, and the most interesting ones, I think, are, are mostly in, intractable. Uh, and so I was starting to lose interest. It's funny you say that, though. Last night, I took a long walk with some former colleagues, and we talked about general relativity and uh, Einstein the entire walk. And it was one of the most exciting walks I've had. I take a walk every night. But yeah. one of the most interesting walks I've had. So I haven't completely lost interest. For sure. But it's cool that you've also discovered a, a very similar vein that's more focused on the immediate answering questions, problem solving, that kind of thing that seems to have kind of got your attention. Is that, is that right? And there is another common thread, which is just ethics. One of the philosophical questions is how we ought to act. What should we do? Uh, So I spent a decent amount of time thinking about that and teaching ethics. And the answer that often uh, came up in my introduction to philosophy class, well, all the students and I, when we discussed what should we do, how can we make the biggest impact? One of the candidates was, quit school, quit teaching, and go try to get as rich as we can to use the money to make a positive impact, to invest mm. in, in businesses that make a positive impact, to give to charities and make a positive impact. Uh, and so when I started the business, I thought, you know, best case scenario is that I make a million dollars on my own and use that million dollars uh, for good. And now it's evolved into a situation where the company has far more leverage than I do personally. And the company's in a position to make a a big impact globally, yeah. a sustainable po- impact. If we build the company in a certain way on a certain foundation, even if I'm no longer with the company in however many years and the current employees aren't, still it could be a, a force of good. Absolutely. I- I'm curious, uh, staying on this for, for a little bit longer, it's just fun, it's fun just kind of uh, playing jazz with you right now about all these connections. Was there anything that maybe was a philosophical or worldview or idea you had in your head in academia that got challenged or changed as you stepped into running a business? Uh, I'd say not so much philosophically, but something close. You know, there's philosophy of the mind. I, I mentioned consciousness. And I think a lot of people who don't who don't have a background in philosophy confuse philosophy with psychology for good mm-hmm. reason, because there's some overlap there, right? Both study the mind and how we think, and I have learned a lot about how people how people's minds work in business. In philosophy, 
uh, we pretty much work on our own. It's a solitary sport. We're kind of like mathematicians who just sit in, in white rooms. We wear white gloves and white outfits. We don't have laboratories <laughs> or, or aquariums. We just sit and think, right? Yeah. It's yeah. pretty solitary. And in business, you can't do that. You've got to interact with people as your business grows. You've got to understand different psychologies, different ways of of working with different people, debating different people. Mm. Uh, so I've learned a lot about uh, psychology over the years and what types of what types of people there are. Mm. Yeah, man, that's awesome. When you were in those early stages of of really starting this business, when you look back on it. What were some of the biggest lessons that pop out to you? There's there's one big lesson, which is don't try to do everything yourself, which is what I did. Huh. Right. That, that, that's a great segue, actually, right there, because I uh, the explanation for why I tried to do everything myself is probably from philosophy. I was it's a solitary sport. So, yeah, the best, I think the best philosophers, they do they collaborate. So it's, it's not like they, they don't debate with one another. But, you know, they sit and they think outside the box. So they try to solve questions in an original fashion on their own. They take a fresh perspective. That's what I was trained to do. And so when I came into business, I just naturally applied that approach. And I tried to solve all the problems on my own without consulting with experts. Yeah. And man, it hurt me a lot. I, <laughs> I had horrible experiences with supply chain and manufacturing. Mm. Um, I had some challenges with hiring over the years just because of my lack of experience and knowing what talent I could get. Uh, but had I surrounded myself with some experts early on, even you know free experts by tapping into local startup communities, right. that probably would have helped save me a lot of pain. Yeah. On the other hand, the pain taught, taught me good lessons. So it was just, it slowed things down and it, it, and it was painful. Yeah, man. There's going to be a dummy tax either way, right? With any new That's thing right. we do, but it might sometimes yeah. it's a little steeper than it had to be. That's right. Oh, that's awesome. So when did you when did you have your first sign that like this is going to work? Maybe you still didn't know it was going to be as massive as it is today, but like this is not going in the failed category. Wow, there were a couple of events that gave me that feeling. I just had I just thought of two. One was a was a concrete just single event and it was in the first year of sales 2014 uh, i flipped on the website it was just crickets nobody of course came to the website even though i was expecting for some reason all these people to start buying <laughs> i had hired two people these two huge guys that i that were clearing burnt wood off the hill from the fire they were sitting in my garage ready to fulfill orders and we flipped the switch and nothing happened so we just waited and waited and they ended up just eating all of my food and that was about it. Um, but, so we waited, but then I got a break. And a few, a few weeks later, uh, somebody invited me to go to a promotional industry trade show uh, and share a booth. They had giant Christmas stockings filled with stuff, and they were selling those as promotional goods. And they said, yeah, you can have the other half of the booth, and you, you can sell your pop socket scripts to the promotion industry. So you put your, your company logo on products for giveaway. And I went there and had just crowds around around me. It was crazy. The other wow. booths were, were mostly empty. I felt kind of sorry for, for our neighbors who had maybe one or two people occasionally, but there was just a crowd, you know, 10 people deep for three days straight, asking me questions whose answers I had no idea. You know, they'd say, what is that list price or is that net price? I had no idea what that even meant. I'd be like, that's net. And they'd be like, ooh, that's kind of steep for net. Um, <laughs> I mean, can I, I was like, okay, that's list then. <laughs> but I went away from that thinking, wow, there's something here. And then within weeks I had orders for, you know, three to 5,000 units for 
T-Mobile, Yahoo, Microsoft, I mean, big brands, what? these distributors wanted to put their brands on our grips. Uh, and then these two guys I had hired, and then a college student and myself, we were just, we had heat presses and we were printing thousands and thousands of these late at night. Uh, in, so, in those, the and that's, so those that's, distributors were at that trade show? Is that where they saw you? They were at the trade show and they told, they went back and told their clients, Yahoo, Microsoft, Wow. And the clients thought right away, that's a great, that's a bumper sticker for your phone. It's just out in public. Yeah. You're not going to get a, a lower cost impression than that. Uh, you know, if you pay a few, a, a, anyway, a few to $5, say with a printed at high, at high quantities for a grip that has your logo on it, and it's out in public all day long. Yeah. It's a pretty good tool for them. Yeah. So was that the, the biggest source of kind of uh, generating market awareness for your product was it was it through those distributors or did you guys end up doing more trade shows or online marketing like what kind of got attention to your product we did no paid marketing for the first year and a half um, so it was that you started off the show by saying uh, your niece yep you'd seen your niece with one and then your wife said it's a game changer yep. and so that expression, game changer or life changer, is what I heard. Woody Harrelson's wife, I heard, called it a life changer early on. Wow. Uh, somebody told me that. And so what was going on is that uh, we had the promotional industry getting thousands of these into people's hands. We had celebrities starting to use them in Hollywood. I, I have no idea why. I've had plenty of people take credit for this. They're like, oh, yeah, I got that one into Gigi Hadid's hands or into <laughs> Ryan Seacrest's hands. But it was not deliberate. And it, so it blew up among celebrities. And then my sister, Kate, helped seed our product in middle schools in Denver as a tool to raise money for the schools. Yeah. So we had middle school girls, celebrities, and then brands handing them out. And the three together um, uh, you know, fueled this growth through word of mouth. So we just ended up with a bunch of people using these, calling them game changers, calling them life changers. And then a bunch of strangers, you actually said at the opening, you said, what is that thing? Um, we had strangers asking. Yeah, no what idea is what that it was. Thing? What is that? And as soon as they'd ask, what is that? They'd get the, the fervent sales pitch from whoever was using it. They're like, this thing's great. You can text much better. You won't drop your phone, et cetera. Yep, yep. And then second question is, where do I get it? And we started seeing this exponential crazy growth on our website as a result. Dude, I've got to think that might be that might be the hidden trifecta of uh, of marketing. If you get middle school girls, celebrities, and big brands all on board, yeah. you can't lose, right? Like exactly. that's that's amazing. I, I was lucky in a number of respects. Not only that, I was lucky uh, because of the the size of the product. It's it's low cost to ship once you manufacture it. It's relatively low cost to manufacture. It's actually difficult to manufacture, so that didn't help. Um, but but it's, it doesn't cost a lot to manufacture. It doesn't cost a lot to ship. Um, and it's out in, in the public eye all day. So word of mouth is, is a great way of spreading the word for it. Wow. Did, when you guys blew up that fast, did you run into any fulfillment issues or chaos as a result of the fast success? We did. I believe it was 2000, the holiday of 2016. So that was our 14, 15, that was our third year of business. We were in our, uh, including my garage, we were in our fourth office. We kept just changing into bigger and bigger offices. Uh, and that holiday, 
we had just insane growth. I mean, it was a huge hit that holiday. Um, we had six, we were ramping up our warehouse to try to meet the demand. There were 60 people. We did not have a, a, an experienced person running the warehouse. So there was, <laughs> there were wild, not wild dogs. There were packs of dogs. <laughs> the employees were allowed to bring their dogs. They still are, but now they have to be unleashed. There were just <laughs> packs of dogs running across the warehouse, taking people out by their legs, people passing like slurpees over the printers. There were no rules at all. There's, there's music playing. I'd walk in there and I'd be like, whoa, 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 you guys cannot be playing this music. That's not appropriate. Um, it was just chaos in there, right? And they were not keeping up with the orders. So there were 40,000 orders in the queue one day. I went down to the, to the warehouse manager and I said, do you have things under control? He said, yeah, we hired eight more temps yesterday. I said, how many orders did you get out? He said, oh, we were, it's under control. We got 4,000 orders out yesterday. And I said, how many orders did you get? He says, oh, we got 7,000 new orders. I said, hmm, how many orders do we have? He says, 40,000 in the queue. I was like, sounds like you've got it under control here. I should yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to put a we had to put a note on our website that says please go to Amazon. Um, uh, we don't recommend you buy from us because we just couldn't keep up with it. We were still wow. taking orders, but it was it was heavily delayed. God, that is the perfect juxtaposition of your old life and your new life, right? You described your old life being isolated, tongue in cheek, white glove, by yourself. Right. You know. Now you've got packs of wild dogs, slurpees, loud music, <laughs> and chaos everywhere. Yeah. What that is a hilarious juxtaposition between your old world and your new world. Yeah, it was. Well, and it and it also makes sense of why there was no professional managing the warehouse, why there were smoothies, why there was a bit of lack of control. I mean, I was not, I didn't have institutional funding. Yeah. If I had been funded by, you know, venture capital or private equity, the partner would have put in some adults. Uh, we would have had the money to pay for adults and the partner would have insisted on having some adults run the business, but I didn't have the money and I wasn't wise enough. So um, it was, we were all in ways we were all kids, meaning none of us had any experience. So right. yeah, right. Uh, just kind of flying by the seat, seat of our pants. I love that. So, uh, I was going to ask this later, but I, now that you brought up, I'll, I'll just ask now, did you guys ever get to a place where you needed to take uh, investments like that from private equity or venture capital or anything, or have you been able to kind of bootstrap and keep it all in house the whole time? I was lucky enough to find a few so-called friends and family, just people I met uh, early on around town to invest. So a handful of, of people who, who had faith in the idea over the course of the first few years. Uh, I think in total, maybe I took in mm, I three to $400,000 maybe of investment mm. and never had to take institutional money. So wow. I, I still control, I still have the voting control of the company, which makes things much easier in terms of um, decision-making Yeah, and how quickly we can move. Man, that is uh, very fortunate. That's awesome. Um, have you ever heard of uh, TRX, the TRX bands? Uh, yeah, we just got them. Okay, nice. I just started using them last week. Oh, that's hilarious. Okay. So I was, the reason they popped in my brain is a few years back, I remember listening to a podcast interview with the founder of TRX, right? And he was talking about similar kind of thing, like stumbled onto this, started using it for himself overseas to keep in shape, to take with him, turned it into a product, the product starts taking off. But then he talked about there was a period of time where they almost got cannibalized by cheap knockoffs. 
especially through Amazon. That basically he didn't even know until he looked online. There were all these fake TRX bands and whatever that was uh, almost swallowed their business whole. And he got into lawsuits and all sorts of stuff. And I'm just curious with a product like yours that in my mind is similar to TRX, right? Uh, has that been an issue for you guys where yeah. cheap knockoffs and things like that trying to take over um, that need? Yeah, I mean, by by a number of measures, we were the most counterfeited product in the world for a while. Uh, so on Amazon, we had more takedowns by far than any other brand, meaning wow. each, each day they were removing listings of a fake product at a rate much higher than any other brand. We were, we were taking down thousands a day. Wow. Uh, because it's a cheap product to make, right? Relatively right. cheap. It, unfortunately, it was, well, I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate, but really low quality. And so consumers would buy these products thinking that they're PopSockets brand. They weren't. And then they would break. And these people would leave with the impression that we make a low quality product. So it was a big issue. I was lucky enough to have strong intellectual property, strong patents. Awesome. And then I, I hired the right people early on. A person named Kelly Frazier I hired. She was terrific in helping me to build a brand protection unit just in time. I mean, it was, she built it. It's funny. I hired her. She came from a big brand with lots of experience. And she said, yeah, you know, I'm, uh, I just want to spend maybe a couple days a week helping you out here. And that was the plan. And within two weeks, she was full-time within three weeks, she had hired a staff to help her. And I mean, it just blew up, uh, but she got there in time to build this out in a way that we sealed up the borders essentially in the U S. So we got one of these, um, exclusion orders um, from the uh, International Trade Commission. They, they issue a handful of these at most a year, and it tells the customs officials to confiscate uh, items that infringe our patent. That really wow. helped. And that, that also encouraged Amazon to start enforcing our patent. That's amazing. Uh, talk about, you, you mentioned earlier, uh, a few things that maybe you didn't do in hindsight that well that's something you did do well i mean yeah, that was perfect well it was perfect timing part of it was luck again though i was lucky enough to have the money from the sales to fight the counterfeits yeah. i mean what happens to i've seen it happen to some friends of mine they invent something and it takes off it's just not not the quite quite not quite the right rate so it, it doesn't generate enough cash yes. quickly enough to pay for enforcement against counterfeiters and then they they're sunk it's over on amazon again amazon yeah. they get swarmed and it's just all over and that's where if i remember correctly because it was a few years ago i think he was the trx founder and company was right there on that edge where they, i think they ended up barely having enough money to be able to fight it but they almost didn't and almost went under yeah. from the hundreds or thousands of you know counterfeits popping up and that kind of thing yeah. Um, so man, so glad to hear that. That that is really awesome. And it didn't um, end, by the way. We spent seven million dollars in 2019 fighting uh, in lawsuits and fighting counterfeiters. So wow, wow, man. Uh, sad to hear that. Glad that it's not going to sink you. But man, that is a sad, sad fact of, of the reality of the marketplace. Sometimes, yep. man. Um, I'm curious. Uh, this is not going to be. I guess maybe it will be valuable, but I'm just curious where you came up with the name PopSocket. It's so perfect for the, for the brand or for the company and for the, what it is. Like, where did that come from? That is my wife. So, um, let's you know, go. She, she was a doubter. She was a hater early on of the product. She denies it, but, um, <laughs> but she, she pulled through with an amazing name, PopSockets. 
uh, we were, I was brainstorming with my class at CU. We had a bunch of candidates and I don't know if we had socket or pop. We had one of the two components and she somehow put it together. And I came back the next day and uh, offered it up to my class as a candidate and they loved it. So that's what we went with. It started by the way, as I buttons. So I did have an earlier name. Okay. I got in a legal battle with a big company that sold something called an iButton. So they threatened to sue me. I had the I, the URL, iButtons.com, which they did not like. So they paid me some money to stop using that, which was nice. And <laughs> use a much better name. Way better. Way better. Uh, PopSocket is catchy. It's memorable. And it helped for whatever reason. It helped me understand exactly what it was when someone said it. Right. right? Well, my wife was like, it's called a PopSocket. I was like, huh, I kind of get it, you know? Right. Um, all right. Well, I promised that we would talk about uh, leading your company and things like that. We've had so much fun talking about other things. Uh, I do want to at least ask one question before we go into the lightning round. For you, I'm curious, what, as busy as you've become, as big as this company has, come, has become, uh, what's been critical for you showing up ready to rock your best, healthiest self, um, energized and ready to go every day? What are some of the key things, whether it's habits or rituals or things like that? Sure. Well, you're probably noticing, since you can see me, your viewers can't, that I'm moving around this whole uh, interview. I cannot sit still. That drives me crazy. So I'm often walking on Zoom meetings. Back before COVID, I would take a lot of walks during meetings. We would take walks together around the office. So plenty of exercise good diet. And I've got to say the most critical component for me is sleep. Mm. Uh, So I need, and I need a lot of it. I'm not one of these people who can function well with six hours of sleep or five hours. I need nine to nine and a half hours of sleep to function. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same. Have you had to work at meeting that need or has that always been something you've been able to give yourself easily and fall asleep easy and all that kind of stuff? Not at all. It's a constant effort. And when, right, when things are going rough, that's a question people ask. What keeps you up at night? It's pretty, it's uncontrollable if things really get rough. Yeah. Um, I'll wake up at at three in the morning and never get back to sleep because my mind's just racing. Yeah. Solutions for some problem. But recently it's not like that. I have a a really strong leadership team um, that lets me sleep quite well at night. That's awesome. Well, this is a free promotion for somebody that we had on the podcast last week is a company called chili pads that my wife and i are, are looking into because we had such a fascinating conversation with them and they've created this pad under your mat or uh, under under your, that you sleep on on top of your mattress that regulates throughout the night based on your sleep pattern when to cool you cool your body down and when to warm it up wow and it syncs up with an app and all that kind of stuff and one of our client one of our other podcast guests Sorenex, uh bert soren they create all the workout gear for like um NFL teams, and all that kind of stuff. They were swearing, but that's why we had them on the podcast. They're like, guys, my sleep has changed ever since I've been using this chili pad. Um, so we had them on there uh, recently. So check that out. Free free promotion for them. They're not paying me at all. In fact, <laughs> in fact if they hear this, uh, I'd, I'd welcome maybe a, a, a free chili pad so I can promote it some more. But <laughs> It's a great idea. I mean, temperature is key to good sleep. Huge. So I'm down at 62, 63 every night. You want it nice and cool in there when you're sleeping. That's right. Well, what the interesting part to me was the cycles, right? That there's like moments you want, depending on which stage of sleep you're in, to be colder. And then there's moments you want to be actually a little warmer. Uh-huh. Uh, that's the part that's all beyond me, but the science they've done and the research they put into it. Uh, it's pretty fascinating. Okay. I know you're on a tight 
uh, uh, deadline. So I'm going to uh, go ahead and transition us into the lightning round. Are you ready for that, my friend? Sure. Does that mean I respond extremely quickly to your question? Doesn't have to be. Uh, typically, it is shorter answers. Like I won't discuss your answers after each one. It's more just first answer that comes to mind. Okay. Um, okay. Question number one. Alligator. <laughs> okay. So question zero, uh, the answer is alligator. <laughs> question one, if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would it be? Be rational. I cheated there. So we, we have a bunch of principles in our, we have uh -huh. something called scriptic. Scriptic is an acronym for a bunch of virtues that we try to exhibit. But cool. I often joke, I often say, you know, if people could just get, be rational, we could combine them all into one, be rational. It's just a little, it's one level, a little too abstract for most people. But if I could, that's what I would tell people to do. There we go. Perfect from a philosopher. I love it. Number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business and the worst? You don't have to source credit it on the worst, but sure. single that best and single worst, you think? Best advice this unfortunately it's nothing earth shattering. It's what most I think most successful people will tell you. It's it's all about the people. Mm. It's true. Um, it is so important to surround yourself with the right people. Everything else will will fall fall. Any, into let's, place. Let's, let's dive into that. Yeah. I'll do a, a I'll do a question one a one a or one b. Um, what about that? What's been the the best thing you've learned about getting the right people? Uh, in your organization. I know you said that was a struggle early on. It's been really difficult for me because I have no idea what's out there in the world. Well, you know, what, what's a, what is a C player? What's a D player? What's an A player? If I've only experienced three people in a certain role, I have no idea whether they're all C players or whether they're A plus players because I have nothing to compare them to. Mm. So it's been, it's been a really big learning experience for me, hiring, hiring, hiring and learning what's out there. But there's some really talented people out there and um, obviously they need to be a good cultural fit, but I like people who hit the ground running. They're problem solvers. They think outside the box. Basically they have these principles from scriptic. So they hit all the, all the marks on, yeah. on the scriptic acronym. Yeah. Which I guess it's worth saying people will be curious. So the S is for selfless. The C is for customer obsessed. The R is for responsible. The I is for innovative, the P is for passionate, the T is for transparent, the second I is for impactful, and then the C is for courageous. Uh, if somebody really displays all of those virtues, they do quite well at PopSockets. All right. So if you're listening to this and you want to work at PopSockets, you better get your scriptic on. You need to, you need to memorize what those are and ask yourself if you embody them or not, right? Yep. Um, that's awesome, man. And that is so huge. Finding people that are not just, uh, experienced enough for the position, but also fit your core values and, and principles and those kinds of things are awesome. Uh, what's the worst advice you would say you've gotten? This will actually be entertaining to people. The worst advice I got in my first couple of years was focus. Um, huh. <laughs> almost every good business person will tell you to focus and they'll tell you it's all about the people. But early on, that was just, it turns out that was not, I'm glad I did not listen to that advice because my success did not come from focusing. My success came from throwing ideas at the wall and seeing what would stick. So shotgun approach. I would just yeah. go, I'd shoot in all sorts of directions to see what would work. So I, I launched with customization when 
people around me said, don't do that. That's silly. I launched in Japan, basically. They're like, that is crazy. What are you doing? Just focus on a black grip for your first year. On your second year, you can add solid colors. On your third year, maybe add graphics and then customization. But I launched with a bunch of graphics, customization. Wow. Tried to go international. And then I, I just learned a lot about what works and what doesn't. I love that. Man, I love when there's when there's nuance or even counterpoints to common advice. It, it, it brings so much more context to what to pay attention to. Okay, number four, what's your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal at this point? We are building an eternal positivity machine. So I mentioned that earlier, but it's what I mentioned wow. earlier. We're, we're trying to build a global brand that's sustainable, it's, it's nimble, you know, agile so that it's built to survive, but it's also built to make a positive impact to really give back to the community, help with issues like climate change. Um, it's a, it's a machine that will exist hopefully in 80 years or hundred years. And it's actually making the world better every day. Wow. I love that, man. I wish we had time to go more into that, but I bet there's only so much you can say about it at this point, but thank you. That's awesome. Uh, number five, this is my favorite question, by the way. Uh, if you could hop into a DeLorean, go back to the past, and tell yourself one thing out the driver's side window, when would you go back, and what would it be? You know, unfortunately, I'm a philosopher. And so given um, how well things have turned out for me and how happy I am, I would keep my mouth shut as I drove by and just maybe wink. Not even that, because even the wink might screw things might up. Might affect something, right? I would probably duck as I drove by myself, and just this empty car would go by, and I'd hope that that didn't influence my future. But I'd much rather make all the mistakes I did and have this outcome than avoid those mistakes with an unknown outcome, because I, I'm, just, I'm just pretty happy with how things are going, so... That's awesome. My favorite, the reason I say that's my favorite question, one, is because I get to bring in Back to the Future. Two, <laughs> is because it's kind of like a Rorschach test for my guests on here. Right. They, there's a variety of answers. Some take it for face value. Some get philosophical like yours and give a really creative answer. Others respond almost like, I wouldn't change a thing. I don't believe in changing a thing. I'm like, I didn't say you would change anything. Right? <laughs> so it's just, it's interesting how people respond. So I love, I love your answer. Now let's play this. Let's play this this way then. When would have been a time, as you look back at a younger version of yourself, that you could have used some encouragement? Oh, wow. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm laughing because my wife and I, have, we often disagree on this. We, we, we have kids on how much encouragement. I suppose it depends what it means, but I, I'd, say, I'd say never. I, I really... <laughs> I don't, I think I just got stronger from lack of encouragement. I think I learned to be independent and solve problems on my own, uh, which is not to say that people shouldn't give encouragement to people around, around them, but I don't know. It's, uh, I think it's really delicate. You certainly don't want people to become addicted to encouragement. Yeah. Um, and so for me, no, I'd pass on it. I'd rather have all those failures and all the lessons I learned from them and it created a thick skin and the ability to to deal with failure than to have had encouragement and then had not had less painful failures, but not have learned to to deal with the next failure as well. Yes. Man, I can't stop smiling and laughing. This has been so fun. Um can I just I truly enjoy the complexity of who you are. 
This is so fun. Like, for instance, you gave that answer about you wouldn't give yourself any encouragement. And yet your big, hairy, audacious goal is that you're creating a positivity machine for the world, which I assume would be very encouraging for people, right? And so it's got this, sure. it's got this interesting counterbalance to, uh, right. to yourself. I'm all about positive impact, but I'm inclined to think the way to make the biggest positive impact is for, for individuals to... Uh, to, to get some grit. Fail. I mean, that's a big problem. I think people agree that's a big problem with kids these days. They don't yeah. know how to fail. They're the helicopter parents are always removing obstacles and giving them encouragement, encouragement, encouragement without letting them just go off and fail and learn. That's right. Learn to fail. That's right. Oh, you're, I'm right there with you, man. I'm, I mean, I had to do it for myself. I feel like I was early on in my career too sheltered and stuff and taking no risks and right. I went on what I would call my own hero's journey. Yeah. Uh, realizing like I needed to get some grit and resilience and I needed to test myself in some, some scary waters. And, um, uh, I'm right there with you. So I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying. It's just fun. The physics to the philosophy, to the business and all these kind of interweaving, uh, complexities to who you are has been really fun to see. Thank you. Awesome, man. Hey, well, I know you've got to run. Uh, this has been such an honor and uh, really, really enlightening and eye-opening. And um, I want to thank you for taking time to, to share your wisdom, your story with us today, David. Sure. This was lots of fun, I have to say. I appreciate it. Awesome, buddy. Take care. You too. See ya. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.